You're listening to the first episode of Season 4 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about songs written for, or to, or about women, like specific actual ones. Mostly it's about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy, lasting, close connection, particularly if their emotional and social development were messed around with by a strict isolationist rules and shame-based upbringing in their formative years. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my album Spurned, which is an old word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected. You can listen to the songs on this album like one watches a video of a car accident over and over in slow motion, because it was more than a little like that. Episode 1. I Just Might. For most of my life, I had three real albums in mind to one day record, all ones that never seemed to ever get properly finished. And that fueled this podcast. And at the end of the third season this spring, those three albums were done, kind of. I felt like maybe I was done. Done working on old songs of mine and done podcasting. But I didn't want to be done. And I was worried about the quality of all of the leftover songs and of repeating myself even more as to my church and upbringing. Michael Vetter was asked recently about me and my podcast by a still-in brethren person. The man asked, He's still on his bandwagon about all of that? Michael's response was, Well, have you considered trying no longer calling, considering, and treating him like a wicked person to see what he'd do then? No real answer was forthcoming. I'm supposed to accept lifelong shunning by my birth culture and not go on about it or let it color my interactions with Christians at all. I'm not supposed to be anything other than quiet and content with it. He's still on his bandwagon about all of that? Point taken. Fine. Time to attempt a change of focus, at least a bit. One of my ideas was to try something I'd never done before, to make an album that didn't hang thematically together and follow a progression of thought or tell much of a cinematic story, but just be a compilation of songs for, to, and about women. Those songs were not written to go together, one with another, in any specific sequence, and so they were always kind of homeless as regards all of that, and most of them, written throughout my entire adult life, were written and recorded in an evening where I was trying to deal with something or other and then they were forgotten, like really forgotten. Normal songwriters write love songs and breakup songs, don't they? I guess I'm just like Taylor Swift. Now, I don't have a wife or even an ex-wife. I have women who said no when I asked them to marry me, and I have this album. And I don't have kids. I have former students, at least three of whom have committed murder so far, one of whom his own grandmother. And I have these songs, none of which went on to be rich and famous, nor resulted in anyone's death, to the best of my knowledge. Michael Vetter, even as an elementary school student, already had his heart set on growing up in our church, getting married, and raising a family in it, and even becoming a laboring brother, which is what we called our traveling preachers. I was in first grade, Mrs. Robbins' class. Um, first week of school, we get these papers on our desks that says, what do you want to be when you grow up? And no, no, in, in the style of the papers that were from that time, it said, when I grow up, I want to be, and then there was a blank. And I looked at the paper, and my first thought was, I want to be a laboring brother. And then I thought, my second thought was, Nobody is going to understand it if I put down laboring brother. 
And even if I explain it, they're not going to understand it. I had that much, at that point, I had that much understanding of how much the meeting did not fit in with the rest of the world and how they were never going to understand it. And so I put down artist because that was my second choice. I love the idea of the guy with the beret and the brush standing back from his palette and like daubing on it and going, voila, there's a magic to making art. Of course, you're not allowed to use the word magic in the brethren circles, but it's that excitement. I suppose that that desire to be a laboring brother stemmed from a couple things. And one was a lot of laboring brothers would come through our meeting and they would often stay at our place. And, you know, then they would we would host meetings on a Tuesday and a Thursday and a Friday, depending on how much people wanted to hear them or how many meetings they had, say it was Norman Barry and he wanted to do the series on his tabernacle series where he had this tiny little tabernacle that he had crafted and many talks about the feasts of Jehovah and the different things and their meanings, allegorical meanings for us. And it wasn't the, those meetings themselves that got me excited, but it was the way that the people came together and had this desire for something good to happen and to hear something good and it was that that expectation that you would have then the second thing is is that the laboring brother among the brethren was pretty much the pinnacle of what you could become and it met all of the requirements for being holy serving other people always being immersed in the word of god having a care for other people these are all things that could be aspired to. And at the same time, there was a reverence that was given to them. And so it, it was the, it was the, basically the pinnacle of what you could be growing up in the exclusive Brethren church that I grew up in. My father was raised in a different branch of the, the Brethren called the KLCs. At least that's what us Tunbridge Wells Brethren called them. I'm not sure what they call themselves. But that was the... Uh, Kelly Lowe Company that split off from Darby back in the... Now, I probably have my information incorrect, and a lot of people will be like, well, that's not exactly how it happened. Anyways, they split off back in, like, 20 years after the Brethren had formed in 1820, and I think that was about 1840 they split off. Anyways, the Kelly Lowe Company that my father grew up in had a lot of laborers as well, and so they were doing the same thing. And as a matter of fact, my dad's oldest brother, who just recently passed away was um, a laborer among them all his life and is one of the most respected and revered. So had my dad stayed in that branch, he could have also been a respected and revered laborer, brother Vetter, as they would say, as was his father, who my dad's father was not a laboring brother, but he was respected as being, he was an elder, great knowledge and compassion compared to a lot of the other Germans. He had a great name among the KLCs. So I probably got a healthy respect for laboring brothers from my father as well, because that was just inbred into him. Is that the right word? Inbred? Harold, born into poverty, his mother dying in a car accident he survived as an infant, and being raised by his extended family, passed from house to house, and then evangelized into a brethren group before going to other churches in search of the Holy Spirit, had this to say about looking for a wife at church. One of the 
weird things was when I got filled with the Holy Spirit and started going to a Pentecostal church, I thought, ah, oh, so God's going to bring a nice Christian woman into my life. Mm-hmm. And I have one all picked out, I thought, and and uh, blah, 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 blah. And uh, then one day, out of the blue, a girl I knew from there, I churched with her father, shows up and says, I have a friend and we're going to a concert and she wants to know if you'll come with us. And uh, I thought, wow, you were kind of cool. And she was a beautiful girl. And we go to this concert and everything. When the concert's over, we're driving back. And at the time, I was thinking of changing churches. Mm -hmm. And it was a setup. She was engaged to be married. She was there to bring me back to the Pentecostal church and not to make it. So what I learned that day was don't assume and, and don't worry about getting married. Which is funny because I was 23 and I didn't until after I got through the bad situations with ministry was when I ran and tried to find somebody to turn to. But before that, my security was in my relationship with him. And uh, it bothered me. I thought, how cruel. But it didn't make a difference because, you know, whether I'm married or not, I have things to do for you, Lord. It's funny how when I was content in what I was doing for him, that wasn't an issue. Right. Yeah. It became an issue of finding somebody when everything... And things blow up in our face all the time. We live in a world where that's almost the natural. I often wrote a song whenever I had romantic dealings with a woman. So I have a whole bunch of these songs. Now for the podcast this season... I want to try to preserve the privacy and confidentialities of most of these women at least a bit, so I'll simply use a selection of songs that I think raise topics of general interest to start me off rambling, rather than spilling the tea on specific women from my past who really don't deserve that at all in most cases. In some cases, I will have to tell enough details to make the lyrics make a certain amount of sense, though, I guess, or to spark discussion with other people. I guess we'll see how I do. You're free to try to guess who a given song might be about, but even people who know me really well are going to have some trouble with that for most of them. Some of the songs are dark and serious, and some of them are not that at all, so I'll use a selection of kinds of songs. And no, I don't think I will get the women these songs are written about to guest on the podcast. This is certainly not me opining about everything I've learned about women and relationships, but instead the background to some songs about various situations I have experienced while failing to have a healthy and lasting relationship result. Something I have heard way too much in my life is, why are you talking about this? Why are you even thinking about this? It's not going to make you happy. Just move on. As if it's the only thing I think about. And I don't know. It's not happy stuff to go back over. It really isn't. But I guess I am going to do that anyway. So here I go again on my own, going down the only road I've ever known. Like a drifter, I was born to walk alone, and so on. I have a certain amount of trepidation about bearing my life and soul in this way. For one thing, I might come off as a bit of a jerk, being no more happy and understanding about my failure to be loved and accepted by women than I am about my failure to be loved and accepted by any church group I've ever encountered. He's still on his bandwagon about all of that? For another... I might come off as creepy. In fact, here's how to be creepy. Be male and middle-aged and single. That'll do it. Middle-aged women complain upon suddenly losing the male attention they once complained about getting too much of 
that they are suddenly invisible. They don't get a lot of jobs in movies anymore. Fewer people want to look at them for prolonged periods of time anymore and give them as many compliments as formerly, apart from, of course, their female friends. Middle-aged men, by contrast, show up in movies all the time as terrifying, creepy, threatening, predator, villain, serial killer characters or as laughable, greasy, balding buffoons swooning over young women. So there's that. Steady work in Hollywood. Even if you're not middle-aged or male, really, all you have to do to come off as creepy is to want someone who doesn't want you. That's really all it takes. To get my songs how I want them, I'm always toying with a mixture of angry, silly, and sad. And if you think having annoyance or anger at church folks upsets people, try being annoyed or angry with an ex, especially, as in my case, a female one. Is it okay to joke about horrible romantic road accidents of relationships? Is it okay to express frustration, disappointment, and annoyance in song? It's a fine line. What helps me deal might not come off well on stage, as it were, to others. In bars, at least, people don't tend to pick up almost any of the words you're singing at all. This is a podcast. But yeah, like I said, like a drifter, I was born to walk alone, and so on. And I'll talk about that a bit. But back in the day, exactly as expected by my church and my parents alike, I never fit in at school much, it being the one place I was taught I shouldn't properly fit in, them being a bunch of heathens and me being a born-again, blood-bought, redeemed, saved, sealed, sanctified, Bible-believing, gathered to the Lord's name, seen the light, awakened, woken Christian. But nor did I fit in at our church, where fitting in was mandatory, just like the happiness was. But there was always this thought back then, far back in my mind. Maybe I could be left to my own devices at school too much, and the same thing at meeting. But if I made a home and family of my own, I'd be part, in fact, in a leading role in a tiny community of my own making. I wouldn't be alone anymore. I'd have a family, just like my dad. I wouldn't have to worry anymore that I'd live out the rest of my days alone in the woods paying bills. I'd have a wife and a family. I might get to touch a real live boob and everything. But there was always this fear closer to the front of my mind. Maybe society in and outside of the meeting would conclusively decide that I wasn't suitable procreative material and I just might die childless and alone. If I voiced or hinted at this fear, people always jumped in to say, oh no, that's not going to happen. Like it was a fate too horrible to contemplate. And then, depending on their membership, either in the meeting or in the world outside it, they would say, just follow the Lord's leading, seek to do his will, and he'll be sure to honor your faithfulness with his choice of wife for you. Or, there's someone for everyone, a Jill for every Jack, a lid for every jar. There are a whole lot of fish in the sea and cliches for everyone. You just haven't met the right girl yet. You just wait for the right one to come along because she will. Have you considered changing your gender identity or sexual orientation at all? But in every assembly and church I'd ever been to, there were middle-aged and elderly people who'd failed to marry. People the church had put on the shelf. People God had apparently let down. White-haired women whose names still started with Miss. Greasy, bald, twitchy, middle-aged guys who either avoided eye contact when you spoke to them or held it for way too long without blinking. And I sure didn't want to be like those people. 
I couldn't imagine that they'd all done or were something so terrible or foolish that it made God forsake them in this way. It seemed more likely that they were unappealing and weird, that they creeped people out, that no one of the opposite sex wanted to be associated with them in such a committed way, that even God couldn't help people like that. Or maybe they were just gay and closeted brethren people. I have a very clear memory of one young people's event we had one summer when I was maybe 18. This is about a church event, but I'll share it anyway. One thing that burns it indelibly in my memory is that we went to the beach, and so the young brethren women who normally wore figure-concealing baggy clothes with nary a knee or a hint of cleavage or thigh line on view were suddenly, for the brief time spent swimming, wearing bathing suits. Modest, one-piece bathing suits, but still... And a couple of brethren guys were dating worldly girls, and they showed up confidently wearing normal 80s bathing suits. A real test of the young guy's ability to not stare or say anything creepy. I imagine a few guys failed that test. One of the out-of-town young brethren women from a very strict brethren family about my age was eccentric and odd enough that no one paid much attention to her at the best of times or spent much time talking to her. I'll call her Rebecca, to the surprise of everyone, in her white-blue pinstriped one-piece, it was apparent that day that Rebecca had an absolutely fantastic body. When had this happened? Her bespectacled, unmade-up face with unstyled hair were pleasant enough, but her bookish, quaint oddness and baggy sweaters and jean skirts meant that she'd seemed about as appealing to us as Dolores Umbridge or Aunt May. I don't mean the Marissa Tomei May, I mean the other Mays. Also, Rebecca gave the strong impression that what might charitably have been seen as eccentricity had the very real potential to develop, given time, into something very clinical. And there was a whole lot of that going around among the gathered saints. Not many great, not many mighty, not many sane. But that hour on the beach was eye-opening for everyone. So, like the rest, obviously, I spoke to Rebecca only enough to be polite, tried not to stare, and generally awkwardly avoided being anywhere near her so that I wouldn't. But there was a guy there, a single young person who was somewhere between 35 and 40. I'll call him Tim. The real names are, of course, all Bible names too, but of different characters. In the meeting, if you hadn't married, socially you hadn't moved on from the adolescent phase of your life yet. You were a young person still. It was like the whole Christian group worldwide was waiting until you did marry. I guess we were all waiting for Tim. But nobody much wanted to talk to Tim there on the hot sand either. Tim was middle-aged, male and single, so we teens and young twenties all thought he was both ridiculous and incredibly creepy, as one does. Ew! Well, Tim was clearly powerfully drawn to Rebecca and laughed and talked with and positively fawned over her instead of giving her a wide berth like the rest of us were doing. She was likely lonely and bored, and here she was, getting all of this attention from a pasty, white, greasy-looking, middle-aged, bald, bespectacled, twitchy guy with dark patches of back hair and a nervous giggle. Alone, as usual, I tried not to stare at Phil and Simon's worldly girlfriends who were wearing quite modest but technically bikinis, and also at Sarah, who was wearing a vivid yellow one-piece that burned itself forever into my memories along with all of the bad things at meeting, and I tried not to stare at the prolonged, awkward conversation going on between Rebecca and Tim. And then and there, bare feet in the hot sand, I prayed a fervent prayer to my God, saying, Lord, I will always seek to do thy will for my life, but please 
Don't ask me to live that life like Tim. Don't ask me to go on to be a greasy-looking guy in his late 30s, still perving on teenage girls at young people's in the 2000s, trying to meet a wife thou hast quite possibly not yet provided for me. And the Lord heard my prayer. By the time I was 23, I was forbidden attending young people's activities outright. And by 27, I was forbidden attending any brethren social events at all, including wedding receptions. Not only was I not having a brethren wedding of my own, I wasn't even attending them. And since then, as the decades have rolled by, no Christian woman has admitted a familiarity with or interest in me without the community warning her off. He's still on his bandwagon about all of that? The local Christian community in the various churches is peppered with formerly Plymouth Brethren folk to spread the word as well. And in my experience, women have generally listened to the community unless they're actually looking for someone dangerous, in which case they quickly realize I'm just not nearly dangerous enough to be interesting. And then they move on to the broad selection on offer of Christian narcissists, addicts, and sociopaths. As for Tim and Rebecca, Sarah, Phil, and Simon, and Phil and Simon's girlfriends, they all got very fat and got married to crazy people soon enough, but not to anyone who was on the beach with them that day. So it goes. Now, obviously, I wanted to get a job teaching high school. I wanted to have a church that challenged and enriched and valued my growth as someone who thinks real thoughts about life, the universe, and everything, even about the Bible. And I wanted a wife and maybe kids. I guess one out of three ain't bad. And though I do think that I was just another person who got run over by church politics, I don't see myself as a victim where dating has been concerned. Things haven't turned out well but I actually think they could have turned out a lot worse. I don't, for example, have an ex-wife or two collecting alimony each month and not letting me see kids who don't want to talk to me. So there's that. This is better. I have a number of female friends who think I'm pretty okay in my odd way, and I have a niece, and I have a nephew, and I find all of that a comfort. I guess the story I hope the songs present is that I haven't been a monk my whole life. I have had a life, and it's had happy and sad parts. I did have an honest run at trying to connect to women romantically and find a long-term mate. I really did, but like many people, it didn't really work out. Today I'm watching a YouTube video by an expert in incel culture to see if I could be accused of being an incel. Let's see, evidence for... I am single and childless, and I never wanted that. I do think a lot of the women I grew up with didn't date me and made spectacularly poor dating and mate choices and would agree with me about that. I do think that being an inch shorter than average height due to having short legs has made many women not consider me seriously as a life partner. I've dated a number of women who were pretty close to my height, either slightly shorter or taller, but I know I can never make them feel like tiny porcelain dolls the way giant guys can. I'm strong enough to pick tall women up and carry them around and everything, but my hands and feet aren't much bigger than theirs. And for that, I know sometimes I have never been forgiven. Pretty much all of my exes upgraded to someone taller. In some cases, much taller. I do think that most of the women I know have chosen to partner with men whose lives they can pretty much run, and have generally chosen men who are less educated and less intelligent than they are, certainly ones with far less to say, at least until the divorce. I do think that how I was raised made it next to impossible to go and actively pursue various women, unless some church function was literally setting the two of us up. I had to learn a lot to get over that Christian passivity of waiting for the church community, I mean God, 
to provide a tailor-made wife to my front doorstep for me to demonstrate my Bible knowledge, piety, and abstinence from pop culture to, so long as I hadn't somehow fallen out of favor with the group. I do think being ecclesiastically canceled meant I had my dating life in my 20s and 30s aggressively interfered with by my church group, with the effects spilling out into my dealings with people in general in the local churches, all of which have a lot of connections to mine in our rural area. I've always had a tendency to ruminate, trying to deal with that, but that's a major sign of being an inso. I do tend to react with annoyance when anyone suggests that I have failed to find a mate and that this is entirely my fault, rather than being a complex interplay of society, both church and non-church, and women and me. I think we have all been players, and I think every game has losers. The one thing in common has been me? Yes, but it's not just one thing. It's also been the same society, and culture, and generation, and it's been only women that I've been dealing with, so it's a game with at least three moving parts to consider, though it is of course tempting to blame me. First and foremost, for having this much to say about anything, and not being entirely content with my lot in life. So maybe I am an incel. I don't think being depressive is a good look in a husband. It's the women who are allowed to have the dark and scary and sad feelings, I think, I've noticed. And I talk a lot, like a lot, a lot, because I think and feel a whole lot. And that's not how a man's supposed to be, apparently. Evidence against my being an incel. I'm too old, and we didn't have incels back when I was in my 20s. They hadn't been invented yet. Um, it's actually been me who has turned down the various opportunities for meaningless recreational sex every time. Not the women. You see, I wanted a relationship when a lot of them just wanted the D. I don't live in my parents' basement. I've always had my own place and usually an old car or two. I sleep on a bed in my own dark basement. I don't think I lack empathy for women, nor hate or resent them at all. In fact, I like women. Like, for real. Even talking to and hanging out with them. I've worked with women my whole life and I quite enjoy them. I talk to women more than I talk to men. I don't speak sports. Now, my sister has said that I hate women, but then she thinks that all men hate all women. The group we grew up in certainly gives her ample evidence of that, too. It wasn't a nice place for attractive and intelligent women to grow up in, in particular, and she was always both. But, just like my church saying that my being unhappy with the church for excommunicating me is clear evidence of a bad spirit, and I clearly hate Christians if I'm not content with how it treated me, I think the standard that my sister and many other women hold for us men is that if we are unhappy about how any women have treated us, then we have a bad, sexist attitude toward women. That whatever went on, it must have been our fault as men, and I don't think I'm going to accept that at face value. My relationship with women in general, just like my relationship to my church, country, and profession, is more complicated than just that. I don't think anything at all should be done to alter or change women's right to make mate choices, even if they sometimes make poor ones. I gave up, for the most part, on the hope of a wife and kids in my late 40s, when I thought it was probably time to just drop it, not in my late 20s, when I was still hard at it, writing songs and everything. And here's a big one. I'm not addicted to porn. I know, I know. How can I call myself a Christian without regular church attendance and a healthy porn addiction? But no. I am addicted to beautiful women confiding in me, and in many ways, that's been worse. More on that later. I am not connected online with the incel community, and despite my own life, just like most of the world, including Jordan Peterson, I have little sympathy for incels. You can't just brush it off as, oh, well, you know, no one likes me, but really I'm okay. It's like, no, no, 
wrong. If everyone rejects you, there's probably something wrong. Probably not enough, actually. Not as much as Jesus would have had. They are certainly losers in the literal sense of the word, just like me, at this one tiny evolutionary game, barely worth mentioning, of ensuring that the human race keeps on going and that my physical being goes on to be part of it. If you're chronically rejected by people, it's often because of your own insufficiencies. We've lost that game, but it's bad to be sore losers. So maybe I'm not an incel. I'm certainly no victim, and even if I didn't like it when women I saw value in saw no or insufficient mate potential in me, I'm a firm believer in people getting to make and live with their choices. I don't see sex as a commodity, a wealth we need to put Karl Marx on the job of redistributing. I don't think women need their minds changed about who to marry. And I remember how stupid and childish, impulsive, contradictory, and irrational we all were in our 20s and early 30s. And that's when a lot of this relationship stuff really went down. It was us doing it, and we were idiots. And I've had time now to see how everyone's lives have turned out. People I went to church and high school with have had time enough to get married, get rich, get famous, get divorced, have kids, lose kids, go to rehab, go to jail, and or die by now. I've lived to see women choose someone rather than earnest, hopeful me and end up probably happier than they ever would have been with me. I've lived to see women make very bad mate choices while not seriously considering hopeful, earnest me, and I've seen that doing that has made them more miserable and has messed up their lives long-term far more than any mere female rejection ever did mine, much more permanently, and I feel horrible for them. Because a really bad marriage? Or no marriage? I made my mind up about that when I was 17 years old, told God and everything, and I stand by it. If it wasn't going to be a good relationship that worked, I didn't want to go down that road at all, and I haven't. Because sometimes nothing is just better than something horrible. Sometimes it's the only sensible choice to make. It's really, really quiet here today, and absolutely nothing at all is going to happen unless I get off the futon and do something. And that can be lonely, empty, and depressing. It can feel like it's my fault. Some people will say that it is absolutely my fault. There are people on the internet this very moment trying to sell me protein supplements, subscriptions to dating sites, hair loss and erectile dysfunction treatments, self-improvement programs, ministry offerings, and the value of doing more push-ups. But I know there are people who would give their right kidney to be able to say what I just did about it being quiet here, about nothing happening unless I decide to make it happen when I feel like it, as breathing the same air alone with a whole bunch of trees, a profane little squirrel, and a family of deer. Anson, who grew up in Detroit, can relate to the fear of ending up single and alone. Uh, <clears throat> that has definitely been a fear of mine, you know, as a young person. I, I was raised in a semi-religious home. My, my dad went to church pretty regularly. Mom went on special occasions. And by the time I was in middle school, I'll say I had a rather robust faith. So, you know, around that time or shortly thereafter, I really began to think about, you know, what it would be like to have a Christian family, mm-hmm. um, you know, be a husband and a dad. I'd always wanted that, but I, I began to think about it more in the Christian context. I mean, I don't know, adolescence is, is pretty fast. I mean, by the time, you know, you kind of hit high school and college, and I was worried that I wouldn't, 
you know, find the right person. Um, I thought I did find the, per- the right person a couple of times. I was sure of it. You couldn't have convinced me otherwise. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and on her end, she either, you know, I'm thinking of a handful of relationships. She either was uncertain that I was the one, or maybe she had been sure, but then changed her mind, you know? And so that would kind of send me into this feelings of, of, you know, despair or disarray, like, oh, no, you know, maybe, maybe I, I guess she wasn't the right person, or, or I, I know she is, you know, God, could you, could you show her that sort of thing? So mm-hmm. I can definitely relate to it. And now at 47, and as a divorced person, you know, I married at, I think I was 34, you know, I was married for several years, and then had a lengthy separation, which ultimately culminated in divorce, which was finalized, I think, in uh, March of last year. Mm. So I've dated some, uh, I had one serious relationship since then, but you know, now I'm a single dad with lots of work. I I work a tremendous amount, um, often working on weekends, often working well into the night. And I live in a small community, small rural community. So yeah, I mean, that initial fear that I had of being alone, um, has become very, very real again. And in very concrete or or specific ways. Back then, I sure was worried I'd end up single and alone, preoccupied. I had a premonition about it. And people would tell us young people that we'd never suffer that fate, the fate of Tim, the fate of being out of time, of being left single, despite praying earnestly and turning down all the casual sex opportunities that would be presenting themselves to us throughout our lives. God would just never do that to us, we were told. I would never end up in my late 30s, in the 2000s, childless and alone, having told a number of attractive young women in my youth that no, I didn't put out on the first date. No, not even oral. You know, I remember talking to my dad about it one time and and I said, what if I never get married? And just to put that in context, so my dad died, it was shortly before my 19th birthday, I think. Mm -hmm. So, So we had had that conversation, I want to say some years before, so I was probably early teens I said, what, what if I never get married? And, and he said, you will. Right. And I said, how do you know? And he says, well, he says, most of the people who don't get married, they're selfish. He says, you're not a selfish person. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll get married. You know, he said it with this confidence. And I kind of said, okay, it made me feel better, you know. And while I think there is some, some truth to what he said, I think it's a gross oversimplification. <laughs> so gross that it, that it probably shouldn't be uttered aloud. Well, don't you, don't you um, think that parents give you their best take on what they experienced and it's very different now? I do. But still, people would tell us this nonsense with unthinking confidence. Their God would provide all our needs, even a wife. Anything else would be crueler than was in his nature. They couldn't believe in a God who'd do something like that. And when they confidently asserted to me or someone around, oh, you won't end up alone, inside or out loud, depending on social setting, I would quietly say to myself, I just might. Because that was true. And I knew it. This song is about literally dying and not leaving children behind. But in a broader sense, I think there's also the idea of what we leave behind us generally. I find it an interesting thought experiment to imagine some science fiction movie scenario in which someone kills the internet next month, just deletes the whole thing, and you can't rebuild it. After that, what material mark of your having lived your life would remain in the world as the years rolled by? Kids with your name? 
quilts, paintings, books, LP records, photo albums, sheds, and organizations that you helped make or contributed to, adults teaching their kids things you taught them, podcasts and Facebook discussions just wouldn't be around anymore. Anson was dazzling, the only other single person at a wedding recently, the two having been, of course, seated together as a pair of singletons. He was explaining to her, she's white, what it means to be African-American, he's black, as compared to, say, Caribbean or West African. He's got a lot to say about forming an identity, despite everything, and leaving a lineage. You switch and you use the word African-American, but then you find that contextually they, you know, they kind of take offense at that. And, and so I jump in, I just kind of interrupt her. I said, well, listen, I said, there's, there's this whole phenomenon about that. I said, you have to understand that the African-American people, and I'm narrowly defining them as people like me, whose ancestors were enslaved in the antebellum American South. You know, the people who created jazz and the blues is what I like to say. Yeah. So this people, the ethnogenesis of these people only took place about 400 years ago. And it was by force. And, and this is where she really became intrigued, you know, clever me, right? I said, with all other people groups or most other people groups, they are firmly wedded to a place, to a land, right? That's theirs. So look at Kurdistan. It's not on the map. You can't really find it because it's where? In Syria, Turkey. But it's real. It's, it's in the hearts and minds of the Kurdish people. And they've been there for what? At least a thousand years, maybe more. Who knows? The African-American people, this various and sundry collection of different African peoples, not just from West Africa, but also from Central Africa, you know, Igbo, Yoruba, Hausa, all these different nations. I mean, dozens and dozens of people who don't speak the same language, don't have the same religion. They're, they're lumped together, brought to the new world, end up in North America, right? And then guess what? There's this heavy layer of English and Scotch-Irish that's infused into them genetically. So you've got people like Steph Curry, you know, the basketball player, he's got green yeah. eyes, you know, my kid has freckles, you know, and, and yet it's denied simultaneously. Well, no, no, you're black, you're black, right? Because guess what? In the United States, if you're native, right, you got to be a certain amount to count because you're being compensated for that land that was taken. This doesn't sound sustainable to me. Like, No, I, it's not. It's fiction, but a culture has arisen out of this fiction. And so... I told her, I said, yeah, I said, ultimately, I said, we're a brand new people. And I said, I don't think anybody can say with certainty or, or, or honestly that, that we know who we are because are we Africans? Yes, but not really. I'm a quarter British Isles, you know? The first time I even thought about this was uh, watching, I like documentaries and I've watched several about Muhammad Ali. And it was fascinating to see Muhammad Ali and I think it was Larry Holmes or George Foreman uh, going to Africa to have a fight. And yeah. realizing how American they were, although we're looking at their skin, they were, they couldn't have been more out of place in Africa. And Muhammad Ali was saying, he said, like, these kids speak, you know, English and four other languages, I barely even speak English. Not stopping there, Anson also waxed passionate about the kinds of lineages and communities formed by indigenous people who live around here. I live near the Akwesasne Mohawk Reservation, and traditionally these people are very firmly matrilineal. Yeah. You take your mother's clan. And so there's a political component to it. There's, a, there's a, just a matrilineal component to it. It's fascinating because the Mohawk traditionally don't have a bunch of clans, but over the generations, people from other tribes, you know, Onondaga or Oneida, Seneca, they've settled at Akwesasne. So now, for example, you have 
people who identify as snipe clan uh, or even eel clan. Those are not Mohawk clans, but, but over the generations, they've been integrated into the Mohawk community and they, they self-identify as Mohawk, but they, they have that extra layer because all the clans are, you know, they're related uh, in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. But that's just fascinating stuff. There's nothing wrong with them using a matrilineal kinship system. There's nothing wrong with them relying upon wise women to choose their leaders. You're kind of talking um, about legacy. And when we're yeah. talking about the Wachowskis and we're talking about modern culture, like I, I think our culture, the Generation X culture, has had a big impact. And I think the main legacy that we offer is deconstruction and mockery. And so when it comes mm. down to in the 90s, I was right with it that I loved Kevin Smith movies and, you know, South Park and Quentin Tarantino and all that stuff that was mainly like making fun of things in the past. And I think what really has come out now is they've had their day. Let's make fun of Star Wars. Let's make fun of Charlie Brown. Let's make fun of all these things. And people are saying, well, you've done a fantastic job making fun of those things. You're, you obviously know all about them. Now you make one. And then when they try to make something that's not mockery, they don't have a clue how to start unless they're making fun of something. That's yeah. my generation did that. And when it comes to church, everybody says quite rightly, they'll, they'll see that, you know, my church upbringing and background didn't really work for me. And I've got lots of reasons. I've got lots of thinking about it. But when they want to say, well, what's your church or what's your solution? I don't have that. And maybe I don't need to have that, but I have to be honest and humble about the fact that I don't have all the answers. I think that if there's anything, our generation really has a problem is there's no real respect for the past. Not enough anyway. Now, I'm not saying that knowing a whole lot of things is why Anson is divorced and single now and why it took him a while to get married to begin with. But in my own experience, women don't like men who know a lot of things about stuff. We're not supposed to worry our pretty little heads with that or risk boring anyone. I discovered a few years ago this whole other set of roses that are related to us in Indianapolis. And there, there, you know, there are many of them you know, with the name Rhodes. Interesting. And they're distantly related, but, but they are related, you know. Um, not, not to mention the Marvel Comics character. Yeah, he's my cousin. And they especially don't like, I have found, men who are articulate and good at remaining rational and making coherent points one after the other. Men who excel at debate and stating their position. And Anson is, remember, a lawyer. And he's five foot six. I reached out to Susan Isaacs upon reading her excellent book, Angry Conversations with God, years ago, and we're still connected on social media. Susan agreed to weigh in for this podcast, which was very cool of her. I was talking about facing squarely the human possibility of not adding up with a lasting marriage. Susan's book was about facing up to that exact same reality, but she kind of cheated by getting married at the very end. Susan also had intended on becoming a successful actress back in the day. She got a part on an episode or two of Family Ties as one of Mallory Keaton's high school friends. If you decide to do this, be sure to get some birth control. Well, Rick said he'd take care of that. You can't rely on the guy, Mallory. He's not the one who's going to get pregnant. I don't know. Isn't it kind of unromantic to plan the whole thing? It's also unromantic to be 16 and pregnant. She got cut out of planes, trains, and automobiles as John Candy's wife, though she got to act with him, and he still holds Susan's photograph in the final cut of the film. And Susan had tiny scenes on such shows as Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You. Me? 
You a comic? I don't know you. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm known all over this town. I'm, uh, Shecky. <laughs> Shecky Shabazz. You're funny, Shecky. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I'm not here for the audition. You don't have to. What I saw was good enough. You're in the showcase, you're on at 8.15. Seinfeld. Judy, hi, listen, have you, you know, you have I... got some nerve, Elaine. I told you about that baby in confidence. <laughs> oh, I didn't tell anyone. Well, your friends certainly seem to know all about it. My name is Earl. It was ladies' night at the Crab Shack, which meant me and Randy were using some of our best moves. Hi, I'm Randy. Are you drunk enough to go home with me? Yep. And Parks and Recreation. Three bedrooms, two baths, nice big backyard. But no trampoline room, correct? Correct. Like all houses in the world, there's no trampoline room. Mm. Susan's really good at goofy faces, so she's in an enormous number of commercials making goofy faces about laundry detergent and things like that. Having faced the possibility that she might never marry, she made peace with being single, wrote a book, and got married in midlife. But she also decided at that point to stop trying so hard to make the dream of a successful acting career come true at any cost. Yeah, you just have to, if that's, I think because so much of your life gets focused on that thing. I think about like all the energy. When I did get married, there was something in me that unwound because I had spent so much time thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And um, I've now been four years full time at, at the college where I love teaching, but so much of my energy was focused on what's going to happen at this. Da, 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 da. Think about the amount of time and energy and space in your head that you give it. I had to let go of my acting career and kiss that goodbye. I still get occasionally things here or there, but once I let go of that, that's probably better because it's like I didn't have the successful acting career that all along I had so many well-known people saying it's going to happen for you. It's going to happen for you. And, you know, I had to let that go. And once I decided, you know what, I'm going to have the courage to close that door and say, no, so much fell off of me. And I thought, okay, so that's not here. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm teaching and I'm writing and I'm, I'm having a lot of really great opportunities to do things. And I think there's that thing is like, okay, Rather than continue to think about this, what are all the things I no longer have to do because I'm no longer going to try to get that? There's a, there's a huge amount of freedom that comes from that. Huge yeah. amount of freedom. I think I was putting off buying a house. Like, I don't have tons of money being a teacher, but I was renting throughout my 40s. I was renting and I kept on seeing buying a house as adult responsibility. And I wanted to make sure, you know, if I was going to marry somebody, you know, where would we live and this kind of thing. I used to know a guy and right early upon meeting me, he said, you don't have a working kit, man. And I realized that you need one of those. And I was raised without one. And, and the Christian upbringing did not help it. And I think that pretty much almost every time anything cool I've done in my life, it's because at some point you went, you know what? There's all this reason not to and everyone, but just it. And, yeah. and you just do it. And if it doesn't work out, you're not that surprised. And if it does, then everybody's surprised. No, exactly. I, I, it, we live in fear 
of all these contingencies. And yeah, you just did it. I'm tired of that. Yeah. I did this huge job for Universal Studios. It was triple pay. They owed me 30 grand and it took a year for me to get paid because a third party payroll company was refusing to pay. And my agent and my the guild was like, we're working with them. But like a year later, the director called me. He's like, hey, how are you doing? I'm like, well, I haven't gotten paid. And he was like, what? He called the production company. The production company called the third party payroll. And I finally got my money. But that was it for me. I'm like, eh, you know what? I don't. The other thing is like, I remember one person talking about Hollywood, describing Hollywood as like a bad boyfriend. Because like they abuse you. And, you know, just when you're ready to leave, they come back and say, oh, you're great. And there's certain things that are like when you realize, are you being this thing is holding you hostage like a bad boyfriend or a bad girlfriend? Break up with it. Go live your life. You know, break up with this idea that, you know, you need to be married. Like, go buy your house and do your podcast and learn how to make wood. You know, I love um, Nick Offerman. Oppenheimer. Nick Offerman. Welcome to the Indiana Fine Woodworking Awards, or as I like to call it, heaven. You know, he's got a wood shop and he makes canoes and everything. He does stuff. You can just see in him. He's like, he's fully formed. Yeah. Because he found something else. I, I remember for a while there, a lot of people were really getting into knitting, even guys like on movie sets, because mm-hmm. it's something you could do. Yeah. But, you know, she has something to do, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah, everyone that- needs to work in. Carol got married young in the meeting to a hot meeting guy with a brain and a creative heart and stayed married to him. You didn't get married at 25, I don't think, did you? No, I actually got married at 21. So I got married probably sooner than some people. Tell the listeners about that then. Because you you weren't that sure you wanted it, yet you did it. And don't you have like a sort of a family history for for generations of getting married really young and having tons of kids? And I mean, how many cousins do you, Carol Isley, have? really think of anybody in my immediate family that didn't get married um come from a big family between first cousins and their children it's well over a hundred cousins and most of them are they actually do get married young or it's expected that they get married and have children and many of them do so and they're pretty happy about it from what i know um I i'm, didn't su- think I'm I surprised because i've taught some of your relatives and I keep seeing on social media that they're all getting married at 21 or 22. And I keep thinking that it's, it's 2022. Like maybe they're not going to keep doing that, but they seem to be doubling down on that. Yeah. Even recently, several of them have just gotten married. Yeah, you're right. 20, but the 2025, they're still getting married. (laughs) Now your marriage has lasted a bunch of kids, homeschooling, you stayed married. How'd you do that? Yeah, we're uh, 18 years this year. We have four kids. Homeschooling, uh, lots of moves. I guess marriage is something I always wanted. I always have wanted to have a marriage that lasted and was actually a healthy, strong marriage. I think that's what I, I really have focused on that largely. It's very possible Carol doesn't know why she was so sought after in the meeting and found a thinking guy so quickly and managed to marry him and keep him around. Well, maybe there's a formula. First of all, be beautiful when there are very few women left in the meeting, besides the guy's sisters and cousins, of course. And when talking to a guy who fancies himself a thinker, repeatedly ask him something along the lines of... What do you think about that? Why do you think she did that? So what do you make of that? What do you think? 
This playing straight man to his thinking, rather than trying to shut him up and make him think less and talk about his thoughts not at all, certainly warms a thinking man right down to the very cockles of his heart and even down to the subcockle region. We really were supposed to get married young and have kids in Carol's group and mine, or we'd be viewed as failures and people messing around instead of getting down to it. And we were told that God definitely, positively, absolutely would provide someone for us to do that with. Well, I definitely heard people say that, and that was a big goal. Um, For me, I would question if that was sort of the whole point of getting older. Um, You know, I didn't want to only do that. Um, There was no way that people really entertained the idea that God would want you to be alone. He was a good God. He had a plan for you. He had, you know, somebody lined out for you. You you know, if you trusted him, if you, you know, listened to him and, you know, stayed close to him, that, you know, you could almost count on that happening. And when it didn't, they really, you know, there really wasn't an explanation that they would give you um, for that. There's probably some people like that in every assembly, right? Yes. How do we explain that? And then it, well, it got turned around on you. You know, it was kind of a problem with you. Right. You know, it was something, you know, you weren't you weren't doing enough of or you know, you didn't have enough faith or you weren't allowing God to work in your you know, in your in your life and in your heart until that happened. You know, there was always this well maybe it'll happen in the future. So you can't go down the road of it never happening. You know, never never really was in a mentality. I quickly found that it was gonna be hard to get anyone at all to contribute to this podcast as people are more reluctant to talk about love and romance, especially love and romance gone wrong and divorce and so on, than anything else I've ever asked anyone about. So I feel lucky I got a few real winners this season in terms of people with a unique and memorable take on it or story to tell. Did you have any friends who uh, tried dating somebody who wasn't from the meeting and how did it turn out? Well, they were typically pressured to not keep dating that person so it was a a friction point right off the bat usually i do believe they ended up typically leaving the meeting and so it's it was harder to see them staying in there than it's pretty hard to have a relationship when your whole like social circle is against it it really is um especially the way that you know it's your faith so it's a deeper type of uh questioning when you do so so it's very easy um you know, there's the fear of losing your family, which is tied to it. I mean, a lot of different fears than, say, you just grew up in the neighborhood and try to date the, you know, the boy down the street. Mm-hmm. So you married someone who wasn't technically gathered, not technically a member, although he grew up in it, in his whole family. Did you stay gathered? I did not stay gathered. It wasn't long after that I just wrote a letter saying that I no longer wanted to still be, you know, gathered with that one group only that I wanted to break with other Christians as I felt, you know, right about. A young British woman, seeing my podcast and its connection to the Tunbridge Wells exclusive Plymouth Brethren faction, understandably mistook my group for the full-on cult Plymouth Brethren Christian Church movement headed by Man of God, the voice of the Holy Spirit on Earth, our man Bruce Hales, which coincidentally also happens to have a compound in the town of Tunbridge Wells. And this young woman not only wanted more information about the culty PBCC for reasons that will become clear in upcoming episodes, but she wanted to be included in my podcast. As she is British, we decided that I will be referring to her and her fella as Megan and Harry. 
Megan has zero religious or church background or knowledge, absolutely none, but had an illicit, forbidden relationship with a brethren lad, and not one from a group like my own comparatively open, healthy, and free-free-free-as-a-bird one, a young lad from the culty one that's in the news all the time. Megan told me that she was trying to read the Bible to understand him better. She said, Um, my thoughts so far, uh, Genesis was pretty sick, um, all good, how everything was created. I liked a bit of that. Um, Noah's Ark, I liked the bit with the dove where it like flies off and then comes back. That was pretty cool. Um, and I also, I've always loved the story of, um, Moses with like freeing the slaves, um, I don't know if you've seen it. It's a movie called The Prince of Egypt. I think it's Disney, but I'm not sure. That was one of my favourite movies growing up because I just loved it. But, yeah, this bit's a kind of a bit tedious where everyone keeps complaining about God and, and him being like well shut up and do as I say because I rescued you that's basically what it feels like and it's a little bit tedious of like reading so much about bread and you have to do this to an animal and do that and then you'll be cleansed and all that and it just seems like it repeats itself every few pages so it's a bit like uh can't wait to get out of this one of course, as it was Plymouth Brethren Christian church folks who were her introduction to the idea of Bible reading, Megan was given a Victorian translation of the Bible by Brethren Luminary John Nelson Darby to read for her first time reading the Bible. When I had Megan have a look at a more modern translation, she said, So basically, the Plymouth guys have just gone, what can we do to make everyone's life as most difficult as possible? Yeah, let's do that. That'll be fun. I just, I don't get it. Like, I understand that basically they feel like fun is reserved for heaven or whatever. Okay. But why do they have to make all of their life so hard? Like, even the thing that they need to do all the time, aka read the Bible, and they're like, let's make this as tricky as possible. Um, it just, it's so bizarre to me. Like, surely, especially if it's like for children too, like you'd make it simple for them. And if you have to read it for 10 hours or whatever, like you'd make it simpler not difficult like that i really just i don't get it okay maybe it's like maybe the closest translation because the words haven't been edited to be modern okay maybe i get that but it's like how are you going to relate it to modern life if it's not modern words everything needs modernization like that's the whole point how are words written that long ago going to be relevant to today unless they're made relevant. Plymouth Brethren Christian Church folks aren't to socialize with us worldlies and opposers, but Megan worked at a Brethren-owned and run business, eating lunch at a special worldlies table they kept for them each day. She thought it was something that Brethren folk were thinking about marriage so early on in their lives. Her experience of chatting at work with a 22-year-old Brethren guy really made her think. She thinks that's very early to be making important life decisions? Probably when I first started speaking to Harry, um, he was kind of like, he was a bit depressed when we first met. Um, and when I asked why, he said that he wouldn't find a wife. And to me, that was kind of shocking because on the outside, 
men don't really want to get married not until they're like in their 30s and sometimes they wait like years to propose so to have a 22 year old thinking about a wife I was a bit like huh that's weird but even that kind of appealed to me it's like oh okay you know he wants to settle down um you know he has his head kind of screwed on he knows what he wants um but then as as time kind of went on I realized that actually a lot of sort of reputation things was based on marriage and you can't really live your own life until you're married you know you have to stay at home with your parents and you know you don't really have that much independence so I realized that it's actually quite a big deal yeah because our group is not nearly as strict at all but uh when people who weren't from it hung out with us they were confused because there was what they saw as premature talk of marriage there would be 23 year olds 24 year olds hanging out people like oh they're gonna get married it's like why are you saying that and they didn't realize that that was true that was our life is is once we found somebody we tended to put a ring on that because we wanted to become adults essentially yeah I also thought it was really mad that like you don't get to live with them beforehand of course how do you know like they could have some really annoying habits and you've already married them and you're stuck now you know what really I mean I grew up that way but um and it's traditional but I mean this is part of a lot of like cultures from Asia um have arranged marriages and um to me that's even more extreme that your parents would pick someone for you and then you would be married to someone you had met twice and then you would just have to live with them and from what they tell me uh it doesn't work any better, any worse than any other system. It does have that, you know, learning the surprises. But people tell me that until you live with someone and even until you're married to someone, there's always surprises, things that you didn't know about them. Yeah, no, I get that too. It was a little bit baffling to sort of hear about life for the first time. So, yeah, the first song, the first episode uh, was me being that young brethren guy. And being afraid that no one would marry me because I was too independent in my thinking um, for their liking. And what always happened is every time anybody sensed that I might have been worried, but that I wouldn't find somebody, they always said to me, oh, you'll find someone. There's somebody. And I wrote a song because at that time I thought, you don't know. It's just a kind thing to say, right? But nobody knows. Yeah, I feel like um, definitely Harry had that going on. Um mm-hmm any time he sort of had any concerns it was almost like people would sort of swoop in and be like you'll be fine like I found someone you know I was in your shoes of feeling like I'd never and you know a month later I found someone so it's almost like they were just kind of waiting around for that doubt so they can swoop in and, and reassure them and they also had religious language that they would say that you know you are obeying God by you know not having sex with girls recreationally so God will bring a wife. That's his end of things. And I don't think that's fair to say either. It's not magic. And it's not like an assurance for you that things are, you know, you're going to have all your ideals, you know, in this little utopia world come true. No, of course not. Especially because I know that in their community, um, boys outnumber the girls. So there's definitely going to be some people that end up without. Mm-hmm. It's got to happen. Although some people come in and... The only thing that makes me not worry that much about people like Harry is they have tons of money. Yeah, there is that. Unfortunately, with mail order brides and things like that, if you're willing to just find someone in a poor, impoverished country that desperately needs, you know, food and stuff, you can marry 
I don't want to do that myself. No. Um, I thought maybe it might kind of go another way of like, um, he kind of does have a low reputation. So I was thinking maybe if there was another girl that had got into trouble and her marriage prospects weren't looking great, it'd be like, hey, let's get married because neither of us have a choice now. You know, marriage of convenience, perhaps. I don't know. And status is very big in these circles and part of it's money and part of it is that you're not in trouble. It's not fatal though. Uh, if you get in trouble, with lots of people get in trouble. Normally, unfortunately, how you come back from getting in trouble is you become more culty. So if you start judging everybody else and ratting everybody else out and disapproving of people that aren't, if you be that person, you can gain status that way. And it's not a good way to gain status, I don't think. Let's look in the Wicked Mailbag. As to pressure to get married young in church circles, James writes, The only pressure I felt was self-imposed, never from the assembly. He says he had, though, a deep-rooted fear that grew worse with each passing year of singleness. He was told the same thing I was about the guaranteed wife from the Lord, seeing he heard it a few times overtly, other times from my parents. Mostly it was one of those Christian clichés picked up subconsciously. There sure were a lot of those. James concludes, I was almost 28 when I got married, rather late compared to my peers. I distinctly remember feeling second class when measured against those who had married at a younger age and had started families. They seemed to be treated more respectfully in our assembly. There was never overt pressure imposed to get married, but I definitely felt an increasing sense of desperation. In answer to a Facebook list of questions relating to this, Janet simply said yes to all of your questions. Despite being afraid she might end up alone, Janet did not really wish to write to me back in the day, apart from to share family problems with me, and we both of us have ended up alone. Courtney, raised in a Plymouth Brethren group much like my own, to the point of calling her church the meeting like we did, writes, I don't remember ever thinking that there was the possibility of marrying someone outside of our meeting. It was assumed that that was the only option. I had a Christian friend in high school that I had a big crush on, but nothing ever came of it, though I remember thinking that his enthusiasm for Christ and worship was miles ahead of any that I'd seen in the meeting. I attended the Christian club during my last two years at college and found delight in the singing and discussions, but there was an undercurrent in my mind of judging the songs as simple and the discussions not up to par doctrinally. The assumption that I had the right to judge every non-meeting Christian as less than me was well entrenched by then, as I couldn't justify the exclusivity any other way. It was baffling to everyone except the one Pentecostal girl I knew. Brethren people sure aren't the only Christians to think the other groups have some of the important stuff all wrong. When I was learning basic guitar, one of the great mysteries that was revealed unto me by other musicians was that most pop songs follow a couple of basic chord patterns, and the ones that tugged at my heartstrings deep down seemed to mostly be the much-used D, A, B minor, G pattern.
There was even a YouTube video about it by a group called Axis of Awesome years later. To sum up their point... Find myself in times of trouble Mother Mary comes to me Just a small town girl Living in a lonely world She took the midnight train going never written a song with that magic four chord pattern back in the day and rather than just cynically do that I decided I'd use the progression but add in a fifth chord so I'd go D A B minor G but then add in an E minor 2 four-chord chord progression did its thing and kind of spelled instant pop song and one which was really easy to put a crowd of backing harmonies to. I was typing the lyrics into a computer at work in the high-tech lab in the 90s and a co-worker who listened to techno, which seemed to me fairly useless for singing lyrics to, who said, you do music like techno or just rock and roll? He looked at my lyrics and the wry humor in them and everything and tapped the screen and said, that part. It was, listen to me, hear what I'm saying. And he said, that's something everyone wants. I did occasionally play this song live, once I wrote it, that is. Here is a live recording which graphically demonstrates how, no matter how awesome a bass player is at playing his instrument, if he gets absolutely hammered before you perform and has no respect whatsoever for you or your song either, it's just not worth it having him in the band. Not a great moment for one of Almont's many Adams. A song with most of the same chords is With or Without You, Heaven Coming Down, Every Breath You Take, and many other ballads as well as Pachelbel's Canon. And I think that hamster song there. Yeah, and that Pearl Jam one too. Yeah, same thing. No, it's okay. I found the show that's from too. It's from Hemtero. Have you ever seen that on YTV? 30 if you don't have a job, it's a thing to do.
Having a look at this old song now, I have the original sound files, but recorded into a different piece of software than I use now. I had acoustic guitar. I had Bill, my roommate at the time, playing a bass line for me. There's a cleaner electric guitar that's taking advantage of my old 70s tube amp sounding like one. With a pair of distorted electrics through it as well, doing a kind of sliding thing I think Bill's bass suggested to me. And at some point back in the day, I was talking to one of Almont's many musicians named Adam. This Adam is not to be confused with the drunk bass-playing Adam. This is another Adam. This one had an open stage at the Celtic Cross Pub in town, which is now the Postmaster's Pub or Il Postino or something, as the building is a heritage building that used to be the town's Victorian-era post office. Nowadays, the post office is a utilitarian little shoebox of a building. And back in the day, there was this Celtic pub in the old post office building, and Adam did his open stage there every Tuesday. I'm a deer in the headlights. I'm a fish on a hook. I'm a boat out of water. I'm a car up on blocks. When I met him, Adam told me that his name was Adam Puddington, as in a ton of pudding. I was asking if he knew any banjo players, because I had the idea of putting a sad banjo on this song, rather like Kermit the Frog playing the Rainbow Connection. Adam said he knew a couple of guys, because Adam knows lots of musicians, but actually he said he could try it himself, though his banjo needed repair a bit. So he came over with his banjo, and I let him run through it a couple of times, sticking a Q-tip under the nut to make the strings sit better, and saw what it's like when someone who doesn't have a lot of time put into learning an instrument has sufficient musical sense to put down a simple part with a feel that fits the song, rather than just playing a fancy thing that he plays all the time on all the songs that you give him. And although we used a click track, I never did get drums on this one. So I asked Evan for some now, and he emailed a few parts to me so I could edit bits. Unfortunately, apparently I was pretty happy about the big reverb I put on the vocals back in the day because I printed that reverb into the vocal tracks left for me to work with now, deleted the original file, and can't turn the reverb off anymore. Sometimes I think I'll die When I'm still young 
But that gets less likely Every year I live I was intending to re-sing the lead vocal with more performance into it anyway than younger me could muster. The song, as done back then, had a single harmony vocal track with all of the reverb printed into it as well. Sometimes I think That I'm just too weak And sometimes I think That I'm just too hard Sometimes I think That I think too much So, working on it 20 years later, I was able to add tracks with no reverb at all to beef up the old ones, leaving me to then add in any extra reverb I liked later on. Sometimes I think That I'm just too weak Sometimes I think that I'm just too hard. Sometimes I think that I think too much. This is the difference between what's called destructive and non-destructive sound editing, something I really didn't understand back then. Non-destructive means you have the software apply temporarily a sound-altering effect to a track only when you're playing it back, but the original track is actually sitting in your hard drive unchanged. It's like putting a bald wig on the model for a futuristic space-themed photo shoot you're doing, but afterwards she takes the flesh-colored rubber thing off and her hair is the same as always. The destructive method of editing, of permanently applying your changes, your echoes, your whatever, to the recorded track and printing and saving it like that with no copy of the data the way it was before, would be like actually shaving the model's head And then afterwards, she's still actually bald, so hopefully that's what you want in the other pictures you're going to be taking. With this vocal, the recorded file is still stuck with that big reverb on it. So I fixed that up, leaving the old over-reverbed vocal stuff quietly in the background and layered some more harmony vocals on top, filling in as usual for my sister, who doesn't like to do music anymore. I just... I just... As usual, when mixing, I then struggled with wanting to hear the harmony vocals, but also wanting to have a lead vocal sitting out there front and center and not being drowned out by them. Sometimes I think I'll die when I'm still young, but that gets less likely. Every year I live Sometimes I think I'll die When I'm holding all alone And I sure wish I could say The same thing about that But you say that everybody Is somebody And you say that everybody Someone and you say that there's somebody for everybody, but right now I'm pretty sure that you don't don't really know. Sometimes I think that I'm just too. Sometimes I think that I'm just 